You're listening to a teaching from Vintage Church LA. This week we're hearing from lead pastor Gare Jones. We are going to look at the Easter story this morning. We're going to begin by looking at a letter, part of the Bible, that Paul wrote to a young church in Corinth. If you're unfamiliar with Paul, he was one of the first opposers of the Christian faith. In fact, his job was to persecute Christians. But his story is he met the risen Jesus and it totally flipped his life upside down. And he realized that Jesus had risen from the dead and he became one of his greatest proponents declaring to many that Jesus was alive. And so he wrote a letter to a little church in Corinth, reminding them and reminding us all this Easter morning that Jesus rose from the dead. So if you have have your Bibles, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll begin in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen for you to follow along. Now, brothers and sisters... I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I have received, I pass on to you as of first importance. Now, this next three of all verses, which I'm about to read, is Paul saying, look, I heard this when I first became a Christian, and I'm passing it on to you. And scholars of biblical literature, both non-Christian and Christian, agree that this is probably the earliest statement of the early church, dating all the way back to probably around AD 37, a couple of years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. So Paul's going, look, Do you remember, this is what I heard, and this is what I'm passing on to you. So let's, so imagine this is in quotations. He said, Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me. And then verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul reminds them and us of the foundation of our faith, what this whole Christianity thing is all about. And he summarizes it in one word. He summarizes it in, word, in one word, the gospel. He doesn't say, look, our Christian faith is about a moral code to follow or an example of love to emulate. He says this whole thing is about one word, the gospel. Now, that's not a word we use in today's society. But it's a very familiar word in the first century. And the gospel was an event that had happened in society that had significant consequences for everyone. Literally, the word gospel means good news. But it wasn't just ordinary good news. It was good news that meant everybody 
and everything would now be different. It was a kind of news that is very rare, but it has a significant effect on your life. I don't know about you, but that kind of good news rarely happens. I remember one such instance that when Lizzie and I got married and we went to live in Switzerland, we were working there and we had this kind of gospel news. One day in the hospital when the doctor looked at me and said, it's a girl. Now that's just not ordinary good news. That's the kind of gospel good news because I realized then and said to my wife that things would never be the same ever again. In fact, we were like very newbies at parents. And I remember we got this little bundle called Amy and like held her like this as we went out of the hospital. We put her in a car seat and we remember driving away and we both looked at each other and almost kind of went, oh no, what have we done? <laughs> we were petrified of this little thing in the back seat. We kept looking, you know, whether we agreed with this or not, whether we liked it or not, we did love it, but it's like, this has happened. And our life is now would never be the same. And so we did what we used to do in those days in moments of panic to comfort ourselves. We went drive through McDonald's just to, just to kind of <laughs> calm our nerves a bit. But we realized very quickly things would never be the same. Something had happened. Amy was here. And things would never be the same again. Remember a couple of weeks later, we kind of wanted to kid ourselves that life wasn't going to change too much. And so we used to go skiing a lot up into the mountains around Geneva most weekends. And we thought, huh, newborn baby, it's not going to get in the way of us skiing. I remember we went down to the local kind of Costco store, got the smallest like onesie ski outfit that we could find. It, her arms were still only halfway down, but we rolled up the sleeves and got her tucked in. We thought our lives aren't going to change. And so we strapped her into like the baby Bjorn thing. I don't know if they still have them nowadays. And there we were on the slopes up in kind of uh, Chamonix in Switzerland with every looking at us with the obvious message, bad parent. <laughs> we thought, yeah, I guess life has now changed. Something had happened that meant life would never be the same again. It was a gospel type of good news. Throughout history, we've seen these types of good news. They're gospel type of good news. We'll be celebrating in a couple of months, Juneteenth, and I can only imagine that day of celebration in 1865 when federal troops marched into Galveston to announce the good news to the slaves there that, guys, two and a half years ago, Abraham Lincoln signed the Declaration to free you. Good news. Things will now never be the same. It's a gospel kind of good news. I remember before my grandfather passed away, he had served in World War II. He had been shot in the leg and that had damaged him significantly. And so he, he was home at the time when he heard, and he told me, I will never forget the day I heard the good news. On May 8th, 1945, he said, I heard through the wireless, we were all bent over around this wireless. If you don't know what a wireless is, it's kind of like a radio. If you don't know what a radio is, just think of Netflix without pictures. <laughs> and... Uh, and I remember dialing in and we heard over the wireless that Germany had surrendered unconditionally. Victory in Europe Day. And we all cheered because things would now never be the same again. Something had happened that meant everyone 
everywhere, for all time, would never be the same again. This is the word that Paul uses to summarize what happened on Easter morning. He said there's a gospel type of good news has happened. Something has happened that Jesus, God has come himself in Jesus and he has died on the cross, but Easter morning celebrates a gospel event. He has risen from the dead. And this will now mean everything's different for everyone, everywhere. Now, before we dig into this in a minute, if you're like me and those friends who know me, I go at this point, whoa, time out, time out. Really? Resurrection? I'm a skeptic by nature. I'm always a little kid who goes, well, really? Why? Prove it. You know, I ended up being a lawyer because of that. And it's just, I value evidence. And I remember in my late teens and 20s going, really? Sure, I can buy this could be a gospel event if it was true. But dead people don't come back to life. Where is the evidence? We don't have time to go through all the evidence but for people like Paul, it would, must have, and it needed to have been significant for him to stop persecuting Christians and become a follower of Jesus. And in my exploration, if you're anything like me, I'm not going to hide any question. I'm not just going to take a blind leap of faith. I want to know that this happened. And so I went on my own journey and discovered, to my surprise, the overwhelming evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. We look at that evidence and we can discuss more of it on something called Alpha, which is starting in a couple of weeks for skeptics like me and kind of people who wanna just really make sure that, that what they believe is true. For over eight weeks, we dig into these issues. But I remember looking at the evidence of the resurrection and it really revolves around four pieces of evidence, which we'll look at if you come on Alpha. The evidence of the empty tomb. The evidence of Jesus appearing to way over 500 people. The evidence of the transformation of these fearful disciples. People who were afraid to go out because they would be crucified like Jesus had been crucified. But something had happened that meant that they were no longer fearful but furiously courageous. What happened except for the resurrection that transformed them. That they went even to their graves they were martyred and tortured without ever changing their mind and just saying, but he's alive. I remember reading this from Chuck Colson, who was one of President Nixon's kind of hatchet men in the Watergate scandal. He went to prison and became a follower of Jesus because in prison, someone explained to him the evidence for the resurrection. He said this, I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone, everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. <laughs> You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years. Absolutely impossible. There's also the evidence of the impact 
of the risen Jesus on society, and particularly the early church, that it swelled from a persecuted small gathering and it spread like wildfire around the known world at the time where people were kept saying, I've met the risen Christ. But evidence is not enough for me. <laughs> you see, evidence can only take me so far because I don't know about you, but faith demands not just evidence, but experience. And evidence kind of leaves a gap. And for me, I found eventually that that evidence was supplemented by my experience. So I was in my 20s, re-questioning my faith, kind of shaking the tree of faith to go, oh, is this going to stand? And what did it for me was not so much the convincing evidence of the resurrection, but my, ex my experience of the resurrection. So during my wandering years and during my questioning years, I couldn't shake the fact that I knew and I had experienced that Jesus was alive. That it rang true, all the evidence, because it was true for me. One example was I remember uh, I was dating a girl at college and uh, it broke up. She broke up with me and I was very sad. And all my buddies were away. I don't know why. It must have been spring break and I was left behind. And so... Um, but I was like really broken hearted and I was in my room and you know, it was like two, three in the morning and I'm boohooing in the corner by myself. And all of a sudden, the phone rang. It was the days before cell phone, so I like picked up the receiver and um, kind of, I said, hello? Hello? So I, I kind of look like I'm in Downton Abbey right now. Phones went, I'm not that old, but I picked up the receiver, I went, hello? And I heard this voice say, yeah. I went, yeah, who's this? When it's Dave, Dave Jones. No relation to me, just a friend of mine. I went, Dave, it's three in the morning. What's going on? He went, no, that's the question for you. What's going on? I said, he said, I have been sleeping and then God woke me up. I had a dream that God took me out of my dream and literally my dream was I've got to call you because something's happened. What's going on? I went, Dave, she broke up with me. <laughs> and I poured out my heart. I went, Dave, I'm all alone. He went, well, get on a train and come down here. I was in Bristol about two hours. I'm still doing this. I, uh, <laughs> I was in Bristol about two hours away from London. I went, I can't afford it, Dave. He went, don't worry, I, I got it covered. And so I got on a train about four in the morning, got straight to London. He met me at the train station and I stayed with Dave for about three or four days. But see, all of my wandering years, I thought, yeah, there's the evidence. I've asked all the questions and it, okay, there's plausible answers to all of this. But Jesus is alive. He woke Dave up in the middle of the night to call me because I was having a teenage moment. This is how much Jesus loves us. This is how much he's alive. And this is what he wants to be for you. Alive that he can be with you. Not just intellectually, but in the middle of your darkest moments, he wants to be with you. But so what about the resurrection? Like, sure, okay, yeah, I may buy into it. It may have happened, sure. But what is the big deal? 
Why is it a gospel event as opposed to, huh, another Lazarus moment, a, a, a guy came back from the dead? Sure, Jesus came back from the dead. Why is that a gospel good news that changes everything for everyone everywhere? Well, Paul tells us in this passage that the resurrection of Jesus was like nothing else. It was a gospel moment of world-changing impact. He says this, he says in verse 3, Christ died for our sins. See, Jesus' death and resurrection was not just an historical event. It achieved something. In fact, many have said it was the victory over the enemies of humanity. On the cross, a battle was fought and the resurrection was Jesus the victor saying, I have defeated the enemies of humanity. Everything is now different. The Bible summarizes this enemy as sin. Sin. Now, I don't know about you, but I really didn't like the word sin for a long time. I just had images of an angry preacher with a Bible telling me how sinful I am. Um, and it just kind of felt judgmental. It just felt, oh, dude, just, just chill. But actually, when you read the Bible, that's not how the Bible uses it with that kind of venom and animosity. The Bible just goes, what's the word for the brokenness around that we see every day? What's the word of why people hurt each other or why wars exist, why injustice, why racism, why depression? What's like the word that summarizes all the pain in society? I don't know about you and what word you use. Could be pain or brokenness or bad vibes, I don't know. But the Bible just says, we just summarize it as the word sin. It's a, it's a very understandable concept because we look at the world and there seems to be something wrong with the world. There seems to be a condition that we can't get ourselves out of. That condition, the Bible says, started all the way back when our ancestors, copied by all of us, kind of go, God, we don't want to do it your way, we want to do it our way. And therefore, we're just plagued by this rebellious spirit and in comes this condition of sin that just keeps wreaking havoc on humanity that even though we want to do good, we want to be kind, we want to be, you know, parade around and march for justice and freedom, all these good things, something in us goes, oh, but we're still stuck. The last two years have shown us for all the scientific progress, all the educational breakthroughs, all the economic prosperity, all the political freedom, we are still divided. We are still hurting one another. We are still trapped in this condition of sin. We just can't get ourselves out of it. Not only in society, but also in here. I don't know about you, but... I love LA and come to LA and it's the city of well-being. It's the you know, hashtag be kind, all these kind of things. And we want to be these type of people, right? We want to be kind. We want to be peaceful. We want to have well-being. We want to have this health within us that is just kind of exudes good vibes. And we have momentary glimpses of it. But if we're really honest... If we're brutally realistic, we can hashtag all we want. But we live in a city that 
Inside, we are covering up the pain and the darkness and the brokenness, the mixed bag of desires. There we go. Man, we all want to get out of this, but we feel trapped. There's a condition that Jesus looks down on us as a human race, his creation. And as out of his love, he says to his father, we have to do something about this. We have to do something about this. It's our children, it's our family. We have to actually help free them from this curse of sin, which they cannot get out of themselves. This is why Paul says, Christ died for our sins. I don't know about you, but I love therapy. I love rich friendships. I love sometimes physical exercise. I love all the things that we are to build up kind of our broken lives. You know, and I've moved to LA and there's more things that I can do in my own strength to kind of feel peaceful. Someone says, have you tried like a sound bath or goat yoga or whatever it may be? But I don't know about you. I don't know about you. But I kind of feel the jury's already come in and whatever else we try, even juicing ain't going to cut it. Because whatever we do feels like we're just picking off the, the leaves of the weed, but the root still stays in. And we have momentary, oh man, it feels fine. And then the root's still there and it grows up again. And into this problem of humanity, Paul comes with the gospel, the good news that Christ died for your sins. In other words, on the cross, he took this root onto himself. In some mysterious, only God kind of way, he said, I'm going to come and I'm going to take and extract this condition of sin and inject it into myself. It's why Paul wrote, he became sin for us. That God loved you so much that he said, I will take this onto myself. I will bury it into the ground. And when I rise again, the curse of sin has been defeated so that you can truly be free and discover life without this curse. This is the good news of Easter. When I came back to Jesus in my mid-twenties, I came back broken and battered. Broken by sin. You know what, I, there was this condition of, you know, I wanna do the right things, but I keep doing bad stuff. And I'd done things in my life to hurt others, and I'd done things that had hurt myself. And you may be here today, walking into the room, you know, putting on a brave face and an Easter outfit. But you know, man, I'm arriving broken and bruised. Well, the good news, the gospel good news of Easter is that when I came back to Jesus and when you come to Jesus, you find that he cures and takes the root out of this curse of sin and replaces it with his resurrection power. And over the years since then, it's been a slow journey. And some people would like my healing to speed up. But I've noticed the resurrection power of Jesus binding up my wounds, pouring his love into my scars. And I'm finding day by day in the presence of Jesus with his spirit in me, I'm discovering the new life that comes through the cross of Jesus Christ.
He has defeated the curse of sin. But not just the curse of sin. It's gospel news because he's defeated the curse of death. Our final enemy, our ultimate enemy. The thing that we kind of want to ignore or at least put off or pretend it's not happening. We snip and tuck to pretend that it's not inevitable. But death is before us all. It is the ultimate enemy of humanity. As a fruit of sin, death came into the world. But Paul says, we have to get the news out to everyone everywhere. This is gospel type of good news. Because on the cross, not only did Jesus defeat the curse of sin, he demolished the curse of death. It says in verse 20 of what we read, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He said, this resurrection of Jesus is not just a dead man coming back to life, but the first fruits of what is to come. You know, what does this first fruits thing mean? It, do you know when like, you're walking around the Malibu Mountains in spring and you know, some rain has fallen? I think it was like back in 1972, some rain came. And you're walking up there and the rain came like yesterday and you're walking up and you see these little shoots of grass, these little green things amongst the arid brown desert. You see a little bud flower come out of a cacti. This is what Paul is saying. This is, this is the first fruit. Because you know when you're walking, if I come back in a week, this is going to be everywhere. This is not just a one-off. But this is the first fruit. This is the hope that what this blade of grass looks like is going to cover the mountains. These flowers are going to fill the air. And Paul says the resurrection of Jesus is not just a dead man coming back to life, but he came back in a resurrected body, a body that was whole, renewed, restored, doing things that is ultimately the body we're all going to get. Jesus' resurrection was the beginning, the launch event of the renewal of all things. And the body he gets, he says, you will get as well. Because I have launched something that if you follow me, you will be in on it. The end of death and the gift of eternal life. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, think about the power of death for a minute. Think about it. Nothing can stop death. No human being can stop death. The power of decay. The second law of thermodynamics. Even mountains can't stop death. The mountains eventually get worn down to pebbles. Even the sun and the stars can't stop death. Even they burn out and go to decay. Think of the power of death. Yet someone came who overmatched death. Jesus Christ was swallowed by death and exploded in its bowels. Jesus Christ did not just defy death. He did not just deny death. He destroyed death. And that's the reason why Paul can say later on in this chapter, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? I recall being in funerals these last years during COVID of those who have followed Jesus. And in our grief and in our sorrow, we stand on the hope that Jesus has defeated death that he is not the end. 
that we can partake in his resurrection. There was a story of a father driving down the highway at quite a speed, clearly not the 405, and he's driving down the highway and his son's in the back. And his son's about five or six years old and the son kind of wound down the window. That's not a car that you know, is it? So wound down the window and driving down and the air's coming in and suddenly the father hears the child shrieking with panic, Dad, Dad, Dad! There's a bee in the car, there's a bee in the car. Dad, it's going to sting me, it's going to sting me. And the father said, don't panic, son, but dad, it's going to sting me, it's going to sting me. So the father, with one hand on the steering wheel, turns around and only like dads can, he grasps the bee in his hands (laughs) and holds on, holds on. And after a few seconds, the boy looked at his father, wince with a bit of pain. And after that pain, the father opened up his hand. And the bee flew away and the son goes, Dad, Dad, the bee is still alive. Dad, the bee is going to sting me. And the father went, son, son, no, son. Look at my hand, look at my hand. I have taken the sting. The bee has stung me. I have taken the sting. And that means the bee can no longer sting you. You're safe. In the same way, Jesus, when he came out of the tomb, walked into a room of his disciples in fear of death, in fear of what was going to happen to them. And he walked into the room and he said, peace be with you. And he showed them his hands, the wounds of the cross, that he had taken the sting of death, that we no longer have to. Though we die, we will be raised like Jesus in resurrection. This is why this good news is gospel type of good news for everyone, everywhere, for all time. That God has come to defeat the curse of sin and to demolish the curse of death for you and for me. Why on earth would he do this? Why on earth would a God so majestic and so wonderful and so beautiful who created all of this, why would he do that for us in rebellion against him when we can't get our act together? Paul says very clearly the answer. He says, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures according to the scriptures, according to the story that's been written out in his word. And that story is summarized memorably for us, for why God did this for you and for me in that famous verse in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. See, the whole Bible is the story of a God weeping over the brokenness of humanity. I don't know what your view of God is, of maybe an angry judge who's just kind of disappointed in us, who just kind of tells us to, come on, try harder. But that's not according to the Scriptures. 
According to the Scriptures, is a God right at the very beginning when Adam and Eve first rebelled. And every time that we rebel, He weeps over us and is planning to restore us. Even in our darkest moments, even the darkest moments of the Old Testament, you read it all, where humanity, like today, is doing a great job in messing up the world, you see the plan of a loving God going, I'm going to fix this, I'm going to fix this. I love the Old Testament because it shows the worst of humanity, but the greatness of God in loving us. And you get so excited, I can only imagine the conversation between the Father, Son, and the Spirit. We're gonna, we've got to fix this. We've got to fix this. Jesus, you're going to go, and you're going to have to fix this. Jesus saying to the, his dad, I'm going to go. I've got to fix this. They can't fix themselves. I'm going to go. They're so excited that they can't help but tell the prophets, we're coming, we're coming. And so Isaiah's writing out, God's coming, and he's going to fix this. Ezekiel's going, there's going to be a river that will never run dry. He's going to fix this. And then they whispered to a few of the prophets, oh, we can't help you, but okay, we're going to tell you where he's going to be born, Bethlehem. They can't wait to come and to bring us home. That great day, remember the angel came to Joseph and said, he's coming, he's coming. And you're going to name him this, you're going to name him Jesus, which means he saves, because the whole point of this is he's coming to save his people from their sins. This isn't a moral code of how to behave or just one interpretation of spirituality. This is good news that Jesus has come to save humanity. And it cost him everything. That's why he said to his mum when he went AWOL for a couple of days and his mum's going, where are you? He's going, I'm about my father's business. This is why he came. It's why when it was time with his disciples and they're wandering around Galilee and he said, Jesus says, okay, it's time to go to the cross. It's time to go. I'm going to die. I'm going to be raised again. But this is why I came. And Peter, who we all resonate with, Peter says, no, Jesus. Never on my watch will you die. Not realizing that Jesus is there with righteous anger going, Peter, you do not have in mind the things of God because if you did, you would know this is why I have come. I have come to seek and save the lost. I have come to lay down my life and finally fix the brokenness of this world that we all feel. I have come to call time on pain and sorrow and grief and death. I've come to call time on it. That's why on the cross, I'm going to shout out those words that summarize that I've come to do a job and I will shout out, it is finished. And I will show you it's finished. Because if I defeat sin, it can't hold me down. If I defeat death, I'll be free of its chains. And so on that first Easter morning, the King of Kings who went to the cross proved he had won by rolling away the stone and coming out. It is truly finished. I don't know where you're at today in your journey with Jesus, but he's done everything to come for you. Even rolling away the stone 
and saying, I've come for you. Will you receive what I've done for you? It says in Matthew chapter 8, when the resurrected Jesus appeared to his disciples, it said some worshipped, but some doubted. That's kind of what I would have done. Because this is unbelievable news. And so if you're here today going, that sounds great, Gabe, but I still have to process this. I've got lots of questions, which I had. Then we want to honor that. Because no one, given this level of news, should just take a blind leap of faith. It's too important for that. So that's why we run something called Alpha. It begins in a couple of weeks where a lot of us skeptics come together in safety, honesty, without any kind of judgment, without any shame, go, but hang on a minute, what about that? (laughs) Hang on a minute, what about that? Hang on a minute, weren't they hallucinating? Hang on a minute, how can you believe the Bible? Hang on a minute, you know all those things, because I have those questions. And so I want to invite you, in light of how significant this news is, if it's true, could you not take eight Tuesday evenings? to gather with a few of us and go, well, is it? If you're thinking, hang on a minute, what's it going to be like? I was scared to go to church. I just thought, you know what, it'll be kind of weirdos, all with guitars, singing cheesy songs. If you think that's what Alpha is, don't worry, it's not. But to prove it, here's a film. Just watch this very briefly. And maybe you can see yourself doing Alpha. Let's watch this film. I heard that it was just like a place to talk about real things and have open, honest conversation about some deep topics. I had heard Alpha was a great place to bring people with questions, and that's what I did. I was worried that my friend might feel uncomfortable. I was really nervous. I thought that it would be weird, and I was like second-guessing myself, but as soon as I walked in, like I was immediately greeted by someone. There was no like awkward, who do I talk to, where do I stand? I was led to my group. People were so nice and so friendly. And You walk in and you're nervous, but very quickly, just the atmosphere, it calms you down. And it calms down the guests too. The registration's super easy. Um, the food is really good. They always cater really great food, or sometimes they even cook, which is awesome. Yes, the food was amazing, and the drinks were really good too. They always had like the latest and greatest. Right as you walk in, so you can just grab a drink, kind of ease in, you know, talk with your friend, make them feel comfortable. The guests come with different stories. They come with different questions, doubts. The speaker uh, was not your typical unapproachable Christian figure. It was just like a normal human being and it was really engaging. Like the discussion was great. Um, the group leaders were awesome and super kind. And it was really, it was really great. The night was so fun and so warm and so friendly. If you haven't been a guest, I think everyone should try Alpha. If you're looking to serve, you're looking to connect, help with Alpha. It's really for everyone. Let's stand together. Thanks for joining us for another week. We'd love to connect with you at one of our gatherings or online at vintagechurchla.com.